my name is Karen Smith. I'm a professor of international relations and I'm also head of the Department of International Relations at the LSE. On behalf of the IR department, I'd like to welcome you to the annual Martin White Lecture for uh, 2019. I just want to say a few words about Martin White and about the background of the lecture series and then I will introduce um, our speaker. So Martin White was a seminal figure in the development of international relations theory and a historian of the political civilization of Europe. He was a reader in international relations here at the LSE between 1949 and 1962. He then went on to become a professor of history at the University of Sussex between 1962 and 1972. Soon after his sudden death in 1972, at the age of 58, a number of his friends and associates created a fund that would fund an annual uh, lecture that would be given in successive years at Sussex University, LSE, and at the Royal Institute of International Affairs, otherwise known as uh, Chatham House, where he also uh, worked. The subject of the, of the annual lecture was to relate to, as far as possible, humanist uh, scholarship and to reflect his interest in international relations theory and in history. The first lecture was given in 1975, so this has been going on for quite uh, a few, a number of uh, years. I think it's 44, if I remember, if I've done my math uh, correctly. So you're the 44th uh, in a long line of, of lecturers. Um, and then the text is always published in the, the Journal of International Affairs, which is a Chatham House uh, journal. This year's lecture is given by Professor Jennifer Welsh whose work clearly reflects a humanist scholarship and his interest in history and international uh, relations. Jennifer Welsh is, uh, is the Canada 150, 150 Research Chair in Global Governance and Security at McGill University in Montreal, Canada, and there are clearly some fans from McGill in the audience. Um, <laughs> you can't miss it. Um, she's also a Senior Research Fellow at Somerville College at Oxford University. Previously, she was Professor and Chair in International Relations at the European University Institute in Florence, Italy, and a Professor of International Relations at the University of Oxford, where she co-founded the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law, and Armed Conflict. Between 2013 and 2016, she served as the Special Advisor to the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon on the responsibility to protect. She's the author, co-editor, and editor of several books and articles on humanitarian intervention, the evolution of the notion of the responsibility to protect the UN Security Council and Canadian foreign policy. Her most recent books include The Return of History, Conflict, Migration, and Geopolitics in the 21st Century, and another book on the responsibility to prevent overcoming the challenges of, of atrocity prevention. Uh, she was a former recipient of a Leverhulme Trust Research Fellowship and a Trudeau Fellowship, and she uh, directed a five-year European Research Council-funded project on the individualization of war, reconfiguring the ethics, law, and politics of armed conflict. Tonight, she's speaking on sovereignty as responsibility, which sort of previews a new book on, on the subject. Uh, so I'd like you to welcome, join me in welcoming Jennifer Welsh to this 44th annual Martin White uh, Lecture. Thank you very much. I want to start by thanking the lecture committee for inviting me to speak in this, uh, in this very distinguished ser series, and to Katerina Delacora and Zoe, Adam, uh, Zoe Adams for making uh, this all possible this evening. 
When I was a graduate student at the University of Oxford in the late 80s and early 90s in the company of, of some of you in the audience tonight, the ideas of Martin White were hugely influential. White's essays, particularly Why Is There No International Theory and Western Values in International Relations, featured prominently in my own doctoral dissertation and I devoured the edit, uh, edited collection, International Theory, The Three Traditions, when it was published in 1991. I feel compelled to borrow from the words of Headley Bull when I'm describing the impact that White's international thought has had upon me. I'm humbled by it, and I'm a constant borrower from it. When White introduced his three traditions of realism, rationalism, and revolutionism, in his riveting set of lectures here at the LSE, he always started with revolutionism. And it was a decision, he argued, that was based on its historical precedent in the form of the medieval Republica Christiana. Since the origins of the modern state system, he suggested, there were at least three examples of international revolutionism. The religious revolutionists of the 16th and 17th centuries, the French revolutionists, especially the Jacobins, and the totalitarian revolutionists of the 20th century. The defining characteristic of revolutionists, he told his students at the LSE, was their passionate belief in the moral unity of the society of states or international society. Revolutionists not only claimed to speak in the name of this unity, he argued, but also experienced an overriding obligation to give effect to it. It was White's very provocative discussion of revolutionism, along with discussions with the late John Vincent, that inspired me to grapple with one of those pivotal uh, revolutions in the development of the modern state system, the French Revolution. But I tackled it from another perspective, trying to understand why and how counter-revolutionists sought to fight against the spread of universalist ideas. Tonight, I want to try something out on you, <laughs> and ask whether, in hindsight, we might now consider the 1990s and early 2000s, the height of what I refer to as assertive liberalism, as constituting another revolutionary moment in international affairs. And I'll do so through the notion of sovereignty as responsibility. The claim put forward by a number of scholars and practitioners in the first decade after the end of the Cold War that the meaning of sovereignty in international society had been transformed. From an understanding of sovereignty as the right of absolute authority over a domestic jurisdiction, to the idea that sovereign rights were somehow conditional on a state fulfilling its core responsibilities, not just to control its territory, but also to protect the fundamental rights of its people. Now, some international relations scholars like Nick Wheeler have described this new reading of sovereignty as marking a new solidarist moment in international society, when the social consensus on legitimate behavior by the members of international society shifted. I have some sympathy for this view, but I think there's potential value in examining whether sovereignty as responsibility was actually a much more radical idea. A revolutionist disposition in international politics, White tells us, tends to describe international relations in prescriptive terms and in the imperative mood. As with other revolutionary ideas that have appeared in the history of the modern state system, 
the international order promoted by assertive liberals was to be preserved not just by a balance of power, by a deep, but by a deeper consensus upon particular moral and political ideas. If it was not quite the civitas maxima portrayed by thinkers of the 16th and 17th centuries, its soft revolutionism, to borrow a term of White's, did suggest, much as Grotius had done in his writings, that the legal order prevailing in international society had to more closely approximate the broader moral order that gave recognition to individuals as well as states. And in many ways, the prescriptions of assertive liberals, particularly regarding humanitarian intervention, shared this proposition that within international society, there are social duties not only towards other states, but also towards the individuals whom the state represents. Now, we, if we accept for a moment my suggestion that sovereignty as responsibility was in many ways a revolutionary idea, we can also understand why the opposition to it has been so intense. At times, that opposition has been more indirect, expressed through attempts, as I will show later, to shape the meaning of sovereignty as responsibility in ways more supportive of traditional norms. But in other instances, the opposition has been vocal and fundamental, as it was, for example, in Russian and Chinese critiques of the NATO-led intervention in Kosovo, an event whose 20th anniversary we're celebrating right now, or marking uh, right now. Of course, the capacity to contest sovereignty as responsibility was shaped by a particular power configuration in the international system. So while in the late 1990s and early 2000, Western states enjoyed a privileged power position, including within the UN Security Council, by the late 2010s and arguably before, those contesting sovereignty as responsibility had new possibilities to do so. But contestation was also shaped by other competing normative ideas, chief among them the powerful UN principles of self-determination and sovereign equality. And in our more recent period, the idea of national paths to development, especially powerful in Chinese thinking, has also become a key norm in forming attempts to, con to contest the export of assertive liberal ideas. But before I examine these more recent developments, I want to step back and recall some of the early expressions of sovereignty as responsibility, and then move on to asking whether its impact can be considered revolutionary. So as I suggested a moment ago, the central claim underpinning sovereignty's responsibility is that sovereignty can and should no longer be conceived as unrivaled control over delimited territory and the population residing within it, sovereignty's authority, but rather as a status and set of rights which are conditional upon certain behaviors and capacities of states. And the most essential tasks among these, in the words of one of the early proponents of this idea, Francis Deng, is to preserve life-sustaining standards for its citizens. There were two principal manifestations of this particular reading of sovereignty which appeared in the 1990s. First, the work of liberal scholars from international law and international relations. And secondly, the efforts of policymakers working in the fields of armed conflict and internally displaced persons. So let me briefly discuss 
each of these in turn. First, developments in international society over the course of the late 80s and early 90s led a number of scholars to contend that the legitimacy of states had come to depend on the fulfillment of certain liberal standards and that the associated rights of sovereignty were now contingent on that fulfillment. Let me provide just two brief examples. Drawing on constructivist insights, Samuel Barkin, writing in, the in, writing in 1998, argued that the strengthening of international human rights norms in the 70s had altered the very constitution of sovereignty. While during the Second World War, the constitutional structure of the sovereign state was based on a relationship between state and territory, reducing legitimate sovereignty to a question of control, with the Cold War's demise, the constitution of sovereignty had allegedly been redefined so that a state was legitimated less by its relationship with a given piece of territory and more by its ability to ensure the political rights of its citizens. As proof for this claim, Barkin cited the interventions in Haiti and Bosnia-Herzegovina during the 90s. In the realm of law, there was also a powerful strand of liberal thinking that argued for a reconceptualization of the meaning and place of sovereignty. For Fernando Tesson and Alan Buchanan, for example, the rights of the sovereign state in international law had to be recast to take account of liberal principles of justice and had to evolve to recognize the inherent contingency of state sovereignty. In Buchanan's formulation, this normative commitment translated into an argument that new entities ought to be incorporated into the society of states only if they satisfied justice-based criteria. While for Tesson, the imperative to protect and secure human rights led to a liberal case for humanitarian intervention. For other scholars, the impact of the imperative to promote and protect individual rights was the gradual development of what Ruti Title called humanity's law, a body of judicial interpretation and state practice that cut across and combined the international law of armed conflict, international human rights law, and international criminal law. As a result of the proliferation and globalization of processes of justice, Title, ar title argued, the meaning of the international rule of law had taken on the veneer of domestic law enforcement. And matters which were previously considered in the domain of foreign policy were now convertible into matters of the law. Just as sovereignty as responsibility had a scholarly home, so too did it find adherence in the world of policy. Beginning in the 1990s with the work of the Africa Project at the Brookings Institution, spearheaded by Francis Deng, and carrying through the work of the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty, an influential set of policymakers argued that an absolutist conception of sovereignty had been the key source of international inaction to address human rights crises occurring in international society. Sovereignty as authority had been the problem. For some of these scholars and policymakers, the critique of the international community's apparent tolerance of domestic oppression and suffering was based on a more fundamental skepticism as to whether the sovereign state as such had any intrinsic moral worth. For many, it was simply a shell that represented a deeper value, the sovereignty of peoples. 
while during the Cold War, a pragmatic accommodation of political and ideological diversity required a privileging of the state over peoples, a series of material and ideational changes in the 80s and 90s had called that normative ordering into question. So in his 1999 article in The Economist, entitled Two Conceptions of Sovereignty, Kofi Annan famously argued that when we read the Charter today, we are ever more conscious that its aim is to promote individual human beings, not to protect those who abuse them. So I can't cover in detail the full evolution of this reading of sovereignty. For this, you have to read my forthcoming book. But I want to, I want to make three very quick observations before moving on. First, it's clear from what I have surveyed that most pro proponents of the assertive liberal understanding of sovereignty have never countenanced an end to the nation state. This is why we should, as I hinted earlier, understand it as a form of soft rev revolutionism. Moreover, there are stronger and weaker versions of this understanding of sovereignty at play. While most of the scholars and practitioners to whom I refer argued that sovereignty had often proved inadequate, their prescription was usually for sovereignty to be new and improved. But many did endeavor to move beyond analytical and normative distinctions between liberal and illiberal states to suggest that international law and international organizations should abandon their traditional neutrality towards domestic principles of legitimacy. The second point I'd make is that in most of the liberal formulations of sovereignty as responsibility, there's a sense of movement or change. The Westphalian system of the 17th century as descri is described as a phase in which the sovereign reigns supreme domestically and is contrasted with the latter part of the 20th century and the steady erosion of the, con of the concept of sovereignty. So in the words of former director of policy planning in the Bush administration, Richard Haas, speaking in 2003, there was now an emerging global consensus that sovereignty is not a blank check. It's contingent on the fulfillment by each state of certain fundamental obligations. Third and finally, there's a clear contractarian logic behind sovereignty as responsibility. This reasoning can be seen in the formulation of Deng, who asserts that to claim that sovereignty is unlimited or unconditional is to lose sight of its purpose in the original context of the social contract, taking the means for the end. For the assertive liberals who proceeded from Deng's starting point, the contractarian logic served two functions. First, and most obviously, it made sovereignty inherently conditional. But secondly, it dissolved the apparent conflict between non-intervention and human rights, which is so often asserted in international relations. If the state failed to fulfill its responsibility, it could no longer claim that external actors should refrain from intervening. Yet there's another further step required for contract theory to generate the normative framework that, normative, uh, that assertive liberals desire. The, the existence of something outside of the state in question to which responsibility can be transferred. As I'll suggest in a moment, early contract theorists believed that once individuals revoked their agreement to be bound collectively, they returned to the state of nature. 
But in the contemporary liberal argument, sovereigns exist in a context where a coherent international community can be invoked and called upon as an alternative source of responsibility. As Deng put it, living up to the responsibilities of sovereignty implies the existence of a higher authority capable of holding the sovereign accountable. This notion that there's some kind of collective international agent that can affect this relationship between ruler and ruled is the more novel claim of contemporary liberalism. It suggests the existence of a coherent and identifiable purpose that's generated not solely from the aggregated wills of sovereign states, but also from higher norms based on consensus rather than consent. The development and proliferation of Jus Kogan's and Erga Omnis rules is thus taken by some as evidence that certain norms and standards are beyond the reach of states and can be used not only to constrain their behavior, but also to challenge their very existence as legitimate legal entities. So now that I've laid the groundwork for a common understanding of sovereignty as responsibility, let me return to my larger theme, assessing whether sovereignty as responsibility really is revolutionary. And in so doing, I want to set out two questions that arise from the liberal claim. I actually had three, but I didn't have time for three, so I'll, <laughs> I'll stick with two. The first is conceptual and historical. Is the, is the contemporary liberal understanding of sovereignty really new? And the second is empirical. What does the record of practice in the post-Cold War period really tell us? And what has been the nature and content of efforts to contest sovereignty as a responsibility? My first argument here, and it's shared by scholars such as Gary Simpson and Luke Glanville, is that the assertion that conditional sovereignty is new is based on an ahistorical reading of sovereignty and its meaning one that takes as a reference point an idealized conception of how sovereignty was allegedly understood and defended during the Cold War. In addition, such a reading tends to portray sovereignty and human rights as part of competing legal regimes and visions of international order, one Westphalian and outdated and the other cosmopolitan and forward-looking, rather than as distinct but related parts of a single legal order. To begin, and I have my friend Manjeet Ramgotra to thank for this, many discussions over this over the years, it's important to note that the conception of sovereignty we find in the writings of Baudin and Hobbes, arguably the most important early theorists of sovereignty, incorporates proposed diverse forms of restraint and obligation that were intrinsic to sovereignty's meaning. While for these writers, sovereignty was indeed to imply supremacy, the sovereign as the source of the law, it was never conceived as simply the ability to coerce or the, the, capacity, the capacity to penetrate all aspects of the lives of citizens. The theorists who advocated the legally supreme position of the sovereign in order to solve the problem of vicious civil war were also concerned about the tyrannical abuse of power. In short, absolute authority did not necessarily imply arbitrary authority. For his part, Hobbes, of course, was extremely careful to avoid speaking of any form of limitation 
on sovereignty. For him, this notion implied the existence of a power separate to and potentially above the sovereign. To divide power was to invite perpetual war of every man against his neighbor and to go against the very essence of the Commonwealth. However, in De Chive, Hobbes makes an important distinction between a limitation on power, which he equates to a division of power, and a restraint on power, the latter referring to efforts to keep power within a set of moral boundaries. On the one hand, Hobbes claims that if the sovereign behaves iniquitously and contravenes the law of nature on the authority of the author, he's not held responsible. Some have interpreted Hobbes as giving unlimited license to the Leviathan, given his argument that individual sovereignty once given up could not be reclaimed in the event that the monarch did not abide by his or her side of the bargain. Nevertheless, Hobbes also maintains throughout the Leviathan that individuals can't enter into a covenant that would commit them not to resist force, for no man can transfer or lay down his right to save himself from death, wounds, and imprisonment. Since the pursuit of security is the reason why people have covenanted to create a sovereign, their safety cannot then be revoked by the actions or civil laws of that sovereign. This implies that the inherent right to self-defense exists even against the sovereign, and that, as Hobbes put it, obedience ends when protection comes into question. But the second conceptual point I wish to underscore here is that the understanding of sovereignty, which was legalized and institutionalized in modern international society, is less the version promoted by the absolution, absolutists, the favored reference point of contemporary assertive liberals, and more the version we find in the key writings of 18th century thinkers, primarily Vattel and Rousseau. A modern international system comprised of states that were equal in their sovereignty was only possible with the move from what Christian Ray Smith calls a holistic ontology, whereby the state is part of a divinely ordained social order, to an individualist ontology, where the state is an artifact created to further the interests of individuals. The twin 18th century developments of popular sovereignty and sovereign equality gave rise to a legal system that formally acknowledged internal supremacy and external autonomy the crucial baseline for institutionalized international cooperation and a discourse of sovereign rights. But those rights were also in some sense dependent. They derived from a deeper assumption about the state's crucial role as a shell for political community, or in Rousseau's case, the general will. While Hobbes' approach to theorizing sovereignty was strongly consequentialist, designed to forestall continued fragmentation and civil war, Vittel and Rousseau gave greater expression to sovereignty's normative content and purpose. So in other words, <laughs> sovereignty did not suddenly become conditional in a post-Cold War world. Was all, conditionality was always implicit in understandings of the concept. Moreover, liberal notions of autonomy and self-determination have formed the backdrop for an international system enshrining sovereignty from as early as the late 18th century. This suggests, and this is a theme I pursue elsewhere, that the assertive liberal reading of sovereignty 
may not have the monopoly on liberal ideas. Nevertheless, while conditionality has been integral to understandings of sovereignty, the idea of external limits to sovereignty posited by assertive liberals is more novel and more controversial. In Hobbes's absolutist formulation, sovereign power could not be limited from the outside. Though he accepted that sovereigns had internal obligations, he rejected the idea that they could be externally compelled to comply with those obligations. Instead, if or when the sovereign failed to protect his subjects, individuals reverted to have a legitimate right to seek their own preservation. The assertive liberal argument I detailed a moment ago, however, suggests not only that sovereignty entails responsibility, but also that sovereignty can be limited and in some, case, in some cases exercised by an external international authority or international community. This much more ambitious claim, which shifts the focus of law and politics from the distribution of authority between states to the distribution of authority between states and international actors, is what is truly novel about the contemporary liberal understanding of sovereignty. As the final aspect of my discussion as to whether sovereignty as responsibility is really new, it's important to underscore that conditional notions of sovereignty also existed in the practice of states prior to our modern post-Cold War period. Of course, this observation could be made the subject of an entire lecture, but let me just say a few words about both humanitarian intervention and state recognition in the 19th and early 20th centuries. I choose these two practices because they represent, if you will, both the negative and positive faces of sovereignty as responsibility. Practices of intervention demonstrate international society's view on how states lose the rights of sovereignty. According to assertive liberals, states forfeit their right of non-intervention and become subject to military force if they do not fulfill their sovereign, sovereign responsibilities. Practices of recognition, by contrast, tell us the more positive story of how entities are constituted as sovereign units. They're given international personality on the basis of whether they fulfill certain criteria. So let me talk first and briefly about humanitarian intervention. It was only in the 19th century, at the time that John Stuart Mill penned his famous works, that diplomatic statements and broader public discourse began to refer to a form of coercion that was distinct both from interstate war and from formal empire. Intervention was this practice, and it constituted a discrete act of interference that did not seek to change the formal legal status of an intervened party. The emergence of an identifiable class of great powers in the 19th century, which Eddie Keene has talked about, was critical to the spread and legitimation of this kind of coercive interference, particularly when it was used for what were called humanitarian objectives. But so too were the intensifying links between polities and peoples that made the suffering of others in far-flung places more accessible. A form of humanitarian intervention did develop in the 19th century and was practiced by the ancestors of modern-day liberals in crises such as the Greek War of Independence 
or the persecution of Christian minorities in the Ottoman Empire. But it's less clear to me, the assertion of, of some IR scholars notwithstanding, whether we can describe this practice as a coherent doctrine or norm. Certainly, these responses to massacre and atrocity were not based on a broad philosophy of secular universalism, but rather, as David Rodonio has argued, on threats to particular religious and ethnic groups. In short, suffering Christianity was the primary concern of policymakers and not suffering writ large. Violations of the rights of Muslims or Jews were not made the focus of interventions for humanitarian purposes. Indeed, even the Christian Armenians, who had no natural co-religionists in Europe, in contrast to the Greeks, Bulgarians, and Maronites, were left to endure mass killing and displacement. Moreover, humanitarian intervention was primarily practiced in the crumbling Ottoman Empire, and entities whose sovereign equality with the core of European states was widely questioned. A civilizational hierarchy thus existed alongside the hierarchy of great powers. And finally, the few instances of humanitarian intervention that did occur were not generally considered by international lawyers as constituting a legal exception to the hardening rule of non-intervention. While intervention in the late 19th century was not prohibited outright, given its frequent practice on Europe's periphery, it was carefully circumscribed. And most international lawyers, in fact, placed the question of humanitarian intervention outside of the realm of law altogether, describing it as a matter of politics or morality. The recognition of new states was another practice that revealed reigning assumptions about the meaning and purpose of sovereignty. And indeed, as a constitutive practice, recognition is perhaps even more revealing than incidences of intervention, as it is the nexus which links the internal aspect of sovereignty to its external aspect. In examining recognition practices in the 19th century, as Nicholas Fabry has done, we see that while in general terms an approach of de facto recognition was followed, in which the basis of a new entity's boundaries was to be the territory on which a people freed themselves from their former master, there were also some modest conditions attached to the legal reification of effective statehood. In the case of Latin America, the British statesman George Canning advocated recognition of Mexico and Colombia on the condition that they could be held accountable for the treatment of British subjects on, the, on their land and off the coast. And of course, the UK's recognition of Brazil was contingent in part on that territory's agreement to abolish the slave trade. In the case of Belgium, while the great powers were agreed that the entity had established itself as a de facto state, they also made recognition conditional on the agreement that Belgium would stay continuously neutral in the interests of the broader balance of power. And finally, turning to the states created from the disintegrating Ottoman Empire, particularly Greece, Serbia, and Bulgaria, the recognition of European states was contingent on two factors. The promise that the new states would continue to apply by all international treaties, and second, that they would protect religious minorities. And in the case of Greece, the equality of religions within their newly recognized territories. In short, 
if the Balkan peoples have been treated as second-class citizens within the Ottoman Empire because of their religious beliefs, they had to guarantee that they would not do the same with those who were distinct from the majority populations of their new states. This concern for the treatment of religious minorities was echoed, of course, in perhaps the most conditional of all recognition processes, the post-World War I establishment of states out of the former Austro-Hungarian Empire. Here, new states such as Poland were, were required to accede to minority treaties as part of the confirmation of their recognition. Yet what's striking about this period is the degree to which US and European powers in the end took a very cautious approach, a cautious approach to state recognition, building on rather than breaking from previous practices, acknowledging statehood only in the case of entities which had already attained de facto independence. Even Wilson came to realize that if the mere voicing of claims gave a group a positive entitlement to statehood, there would be no limit to international chaos. Moreover, the emerging states objected that the minority treaties effectively placed them under a form of international supervision via the League. They were also rightly suspicious of Clemenceau's argument that minority protection on this basis would be less prone to arbitrary interference in another state's affairs than the former system of regulation by the great powers. Finally, it was clear that the principal allied powers would never accept such intrusions on their state authorities. Italy, for example, was not required to conclude a minority treaty, despite the fact that it received large areas populated by non-Italians in the North and Northeast. So having shown the ways in which sovereignty's responsibility was perhaps less new than its proponents suggested, I want to, in my, in my final section, offer some observations on how members of contemporary international society have actually understood the nature and limits of sovereignty in the post-Cold War world. And in the process, I'll cast some doubt on whether the progress of assertive liberal ideas can be said to have created a new understanding of sovereignty. Given that I've written extensively on some of these themes elsewhere, my comments here are going to be selective. But overall, my analysis questions the extent of assertive liberal claims and reveals that the negative and positive practices of intervention and recognition do not necessarily accord with a conditional reading of sovereignty. In fact, with respect to the principle of the responsibility to protect, which I'll come back to in a few moments, we have increasingly seen a number of states contesting a more liberal understanding of sovereignty, sovereignty through attempts to transform R2P from a more cosmopolitan ideal into a principle that first and foremost strengthens states and the capacity of states to be responsible. Let me start, however, with a brief discussion of practices of state recognition, focusing in particular on the case of the former Yugoslavia. On first sight, of course, it appeared that the state creation process that accompanied the breakup of Yugoslavia would follow the assertive liberal idea of sovereignty as responsibility. In December of 1991, European foreign ministers met and agreed to recognize the independence of former Yugoslav republics provided they fulfilled certain conditions. 
commitment to the rule of law, democracy and human rights, guarantees of ethnic and minority rights, and the acceptance of the inviolability of frontiers. The essence of the, what was then the European community's position was an aversion to ethnicity and its allegedly primordial ethos, and a championing of modern notions of identity based on multiculturalism and common citizenship. It then fell to the Bedinter Commission, an arbitration body composed of five presidents from among the various constitutional courts of Europe, to judge whether the four applicants, Bosnia, Croatia, Macedonia, and Slovenia, met these stated criteria. As we all know, however, dissension soon arose as Germany recognized Croatia and Slovenia even before the Commission rendered its judgment. And although the Commission concluded that Croatia did not actually meet the conditions, the rest of the EC also recognized these two republics in January 1991, and the US followed suit in April. In the final analysis, there was a significant mismatch between the articulated norms that were to guide state creation and the strategic, and some would say chaotic, practices of recognition. The recognition process itself, and this is true of other, uh, other instances of recognition, was driven by politics and great power strategy rather than by clear application of rules. The use of conditionality as a tool of recognition policy, set out most explicitly by the European community, seemed to mark a return to 19th century ideas of the standard of civilization. Yet, as my former colleague Richard Kaplan has shown us, the process was also in large part a tool of conflict resolution, leading to very uneven results. Indeed, the recognition of Bosnia was less a confirmation of de facto authority and more an attempt to create facts on the ground. Far from being an implementation of sovereignty as responsibility, many see the recognition of the states of the former Yugoslavia as a shirking of responsibility. Next, then, let me turn to practices of intervention for humanitarian purposes over the past three decades. While there was undoubtedly an increased willingness on the part of states to consider the use of force for humanitarian purposes throughout the 1990s and the 2000s, the challenge to conceptions of sovereignty is less clear. Most of the incidences of this use of force, Kosovo being the most glaring exception, have involved the collective security mechanisms of the United Nations and particularly the Security Council's power to redefine what constitutes a threat to international peace and security. The two most powerful cases in which the Council authorized force without consent of the target state leave us with a reasonably clear sense of state's degree of comfort with a more conditional reading of sovereignty. In the case of Somalia in the early 90s, while the text of Resolution 794 appeared to dramatically alter the Council's long-standing interpretation of its roles and responsibilities under the Charter, an analysis of the debate among Security Council members indicates wariness about establishing any new precedent for interference in the domestic affairs of states on humanitarian grounds. 
In the words of the Chinese representative at the time, as we understand it, according to the recommendations of the Secretary General, the military operation authorized by this draft revolution, resolution, that was a slip, is an exceptional action in view of the unique situation in Somalia. What made the case so unique, diplomats argued, was the lack of a responsible government that could act as an interlocutor of the UN for the purposes of consenting to a military action designed to facilitate humanitarian assistance. Although looking back at this case, as I've, I've done recently, it's interesting to see for how long diplomats tried to garner consent from warlords in Somalia itself. At this point, it was clear that unilateral humanitarian intervention was still a suspect practice, and the right of the UN to authorize military action in a on a multilateral basis was still ad hoc rather than systematically conceived. This mission, along with the action in northern Iraq two years prior, was conceived and designed as a limited affair, a temporary response to emergency. Fast forwarding to the case of Libya in 2011, we see a dramatic incidence of the Council authorizing the use of all necessary means to protect civilians and civilian populated areas. Yet the fallout from that intervention and the divisive diplomacy that ensued provides some evidence that the West's interpretation of how and why states could forfeit their sovereign rights was not widely shared within the international community. Indeed, some Western states themselves had their doubts. Key states, such as China, Russia, and Brazil, had acquiesced in 2011. But in the period since, it's clear that the probability of the Council authorizing a similar kind of mission in the future is very low indeed. Moreover, the uptake of British arguments that have at times been forwarded that there is a kind of humanitarian basis for the use of force without council authorization has continued to be a minority opinion in the practice of states. And what of the broader principle of the responsibility to protect? Of course, there's much that I have said and could say uh, on this topic, but I'll spare you those views given the very few minutes uh, that I have left. I only want to stress two aspects of the evolution of this principle, which I think reveals something important about the trajectory of the notion of sovereignty as responsibility. The first and perhaps most obvious point is that as articulated in the 2005 Summit Outcome document, which is the authoritative diplomatic understanding of R2P, any use of coercive means to implement this principle must be authorized by the UN Security Council. Rather than establishing an alternative framework or independent source of authority or induce, endorsing any unilateral right of intervention, the principle uses the existing collective security mechanisms of the Charter with all of the political and great power elements that these mechanisms entail. The summit outcome document therefore arguably resolves the much-discussed tension between human rights and non-intervention, since council-authorized action is not deemed to be unlawful interference in a state's domestic jurisdiction. 
Nonetheless, the annual dialogues on responsibility to protect in the General Assembly reveal that some states still believe the principle creates a more permissive approach to intervention by legitimizing a wider range of protective action. Second, the implementation framework for responsibility to protect set out by former UN Secretary uh, General Ban Ki-moon and the framework which I worked with rests on a three-tiered conception of responsibility in which state responsibility for protecting populations retains a primary place. Aside from raising doubts as to the revolutionary impact of sovereignty as responsibility, this three-pillar framework has been used very effectively by some states to emphasize the more state-centric elements of responsibility to protect, rather than the more individualist or people-centered vision of the original ICISS report. A set of developing countries, including China, has drawn on the specific text of the summit outcome document, not only to emphasize the preeminent role of national authorities in the implementation of responsibility to protect, but also to call for a much more demand-driven, as opposed to supply-driven, approach to international assistance. One that strengthens state capacity, reinforces sovereignty, and respects different national paths to protecting populations. Some states have also pursued this statist interpretation of responsibility to protect by injecting a notion of hierarchy into the norms prescriptions, challenging the Secretary General's claim that the pillars are of equal weight, mutually reinforcing, and non-sequential. This evolution of responsibility to protect reminds us that contestation should be seen as part and parcel of normative evolution, and that responsibility to protect as an indeterminate and complex norm is particularly susceptible to this process. But it also highlights how this norm confronted some of international society's most entrenched principles and processes. During the negotiation of the summit outcome document, but also in the years since, many states, both democratic and undemocratic, have sought to ensure that the responsibility to protect reaffirms a horizontal distribution of power among sovereign states, rather than creates a hierarchical or vertical structure in which the international community has an automatic and authoritative role in protecting populations. It is this latter possibility, which is even more formal and more extensive than the old regulation of international society by the great powers, is what generates perhaps the deepest contestation around responsibility to protect. Instead of viewing the prerogatives of sovereignty as impeding the advance of justice, skeptics of responsibility to protect have seen them as crucial to both protecting pluralism and promoting greater reliability and accountability in the exercise of power. In other words, they have questioned whether the assertive liberal reading of sovereignty is necessarily progressive. And in so doing, they've encouraged many of us, including myself, to think again about the normative underpinnings and the normative function of sovereign equality 
and self-determination. Now, Martin White saw a central paradox in the successive waves of revolutionist and counter-revolutionist doctrine that had marked international society. They aimed at uniting and integrating what he called the family of nations. But in practice, they divided it more deeply than it was divided before. Was this also the effect of the soft revolutionist idea of sovereignty as responsibility? This is a difficult question to answer definitively. White, of course, was notoriously suspicious of progressivist theory and decried its tendency to let conviction precede evidence. It's not a good argument for a theory of international politics, he once wrote, that we shall be driven to despair if we don't accept it. <laughs> I love that quotation. <laughs> it may be the case, as I've suggested, that the claims of assertive liberalism can sit uncomfortably with some of the practices of intervention and state recognition in the post-Cold War period, but the underlying objective of its soft revolutionism to give individuals and individual protection a more central place in theory and practice is one I believe we should not lose sight of, even if we must pursue it through different means. I thank you so much for listening and for giving me this opportunity. Well, thank you very much. We have a few minutes for questions. I'm going to take them in groups, if that's, uh, yeah. if that's okay. Any questions from the audience? Right? Just wait for the mic, and could you please introduce yourself? My name is Lal Chandiyadav. Uh, I'm an LLM candidate at Queen Mary University in Public International Law. My question is, uh, what are your thoughts regarding practice of humanitarian intervention through Security Council? Whether it is a threat to sovereignty? Is it protecting sovereignty? Is that what? Yeah. Uh, the question is, what are your thoughts on, yep. on the practice of humanitarian intervention through Security Council, whether it is a threat to sovereignty? Okay. okay. Any other questions in the, in the front here? Um, yeah, my name is Teresa Squatrio. Um, I'm in the Department of International Relations here. I'm wondering how, what you think about and how this, how the sovereignty as responsibility fits with the increased norm of individual accountability. Mm -hmm. Okay, one more over here. Yep. Thank you. Uh, my name is Suita. I'm a, a lecturer in politics and IR from Bristol. Uh, very much following on from the question that was just asked, I also wondered whether, um, where would you fit in into this sort of counter history of um, sovereignty as responsibility, the, um, the rise and advent of international crimes? And might you not perhaps um, suggest that really that's the revolutionary moment, the historical emergence of international crimes? Thank you. Okay, let me just take one more. Um, yes, right. This, yeah. Hi, um, my name is Manus. Uh, I'm an undergraduate student. Uh, and so my question is basically related to like the responsibility while protecting, uh, which was this notion um, put forth by Brazil. Uh, okay, in 20... I'm trying to figure out where you were. <laughs> right, yeah. I couldn't see. 
Yeah, so just about like the response to the wild protagonist was put forth by Brazil uh, around 2014. How likely do you think it is that it'll sort of actually be integrated into the framework of R2P? Uh, and secondly, do you think it'll actually make uh, the concept of R2P more digestible to states like, say, China or Russia, you know, who feel that R2P uh, makes outright intervention more uh, permissible under certain con contexts? Okay, what do you think? That's good. Yeah. Thank you. And I'm sorry. I didn't have time to take more. Um, these are great questions. I'll take them um, in reverse order, actually. So I think this initiative is, is really interesting in that um, it seeks to return attention to a couple of the notions that were in the original conception of the responsibility to protect about prevention and about force as a last resort. But in addition to that, it raises this issue of accountability for the use of force that is exercised through Security Council authorization, which is a little bit linked to your question. In terms of its impact, my, my assessment of it is that it had the potential to have some impact, and it's remarkable how the ideas associated with it still feature often in states' statements. And there was one moment in time where diplomatically we saw states actually grappling, grappling with it. And that was in 2015 when there was an attempt to create a new General Assembly resolution on responsibility to protect um, after, on the anniversary of 2005, which failed. And it actually failed largely as a result of trying to bring in those notions from uh, Brazil's concept. And what was interesting about that, um, and this is my view, I think others will have other views, is that the key, one of the key stumbling blocks was actually the view of the P3, was actually uh, Britain, France, and the United States, that the General Assembly or other bodies should not tell the Security Council how to exercise its role. And that by trying to bring in criteria or notions of accountability, that the Council's central place um, was being uh, somehow compromised. And I found that very interesting because even though the words associated with Liber Libya were not um, in, in explicitly used in those negotiations, it was always in the background. And the defensiveness of, of uh, some Western states was that it was a critique of what was deemed to be an unaccountable um, use of force. So I can't... I don't have a lot of um, hope that it will be implemented in that way, but the staying power of the notion, particularly post-Libya, that there should be some accountability back to the council, as there is, for example, with peacekeeping operations, no matter how uh, modest those mechanisms are, sunset clauses or discussions that are had on a rolling basis, you know, they're really interesting discussions in the council about the renewal of mandates, right? Um, whether it might come back in in some form. Um, secondly, this question of individual accountability, and yes, I probably skirted over this normative evolution that is happening at a similar time. And I think where there's a link to sovereignty is responsibility, although it's less direct than you might think, um, it should be more direct, is that at least in the case of humanitarian intervention or responsibility to protect, there's a notion that the involvement of the international community should only come in extreme cases. 
So the scope of this conditional right is meant to be extremely limited. Ban Ki-moon called it the narrow but deep approach, right? And so the thought was that 2005 and how responsibility to protect was articulated in terms of specific crimes was a better formulation than the broader notion that was in the ICISS report. But I, I'll, I have two further thoughts about this. I mean, one is it clearly then linked responsibility to protect, if not state, state recognition, to the, to the implications of a crime's lens, right? Which is a distinction between victims and perpetrators, which tends to be frozen at a given point in time, right? So it has um, led to a particular view of political violence that is similar to what we have in the realm of international criminal accountability. But where I actually see the link to international crimes as being um, productive is that um, it is, they are the product of what states themselves agreed to, right? To draw on a phrase of John Vincent's, they created this floor of decency by articulating themselves a commitment to put certain crimes on a certain level, which you know well, Sawita, as international crimes. So in a sense, even though they are not implemented in a way that champions, champions consent, they themselves are the product of consent in an explicit way um, that some of the broader conditions that are attached to sovereignty and asserted liberalism are not. I don't know if I'm making my point clear. We can, we can have a further conversation about it. Um, but thank you for raising it because it was not perhaps as prominent in the lecture um, as it should have been. Now your question is a very good question. Uh, is it a threat to sovereignty? Well, technically not, right? In that if the Security Council is authorizing enforcement measures through the charter and through international law as I read it, um, this is not deemed to be illegitimate interference in a state's domestic affairs. The council has that right to authorize these measures. And what we saw through the 90s was a redefinition of threats to international peace and security. This is a power the council always theoretically had. And it, it cannot use this power in absolutely expansive ways, but there was an evolution. What I tried to suggest is that it was modest. Certainly, in the instance of northern Iraq, the focus in 1991, the focus was on a humanitarian situation, but the use of force was not explicitly authorized, Chapter 7 mechanisms. And there was also a reference to the transboundary effects of refugee flows as creating a threat to international peace and security, not what was happening solely within the domestic jurisdiction of Iraq. What we saw with Somalia was a more straightforward claim that a humanitarian crisis on its own invited international concern. But I think your broader question is whether council authorized action can pose a threat, particularly when we look at follow-on activities that the council may mandate, whether those are transitional administrations, peacekeeping operations, can in a very material way compromise sovereignty. Uh, and in some cases, they, they clearly have. Um, but it's my reading of this is that this is within the council's purview. 
So in a technical sense, it doesn't threaten sovereignty. Um, but what it tells us, especially when you look at the debate among states, is what the consensus is at any given time about the limits and possibilities of sovereign uh, jurisdiction. Great. Uh, we, I'm afraid we have uh, run out of, of time, but I would like you to join me in thanking Jennifer for giving uh, this lecture. Thank you very much.